You're a wizard, Harry. It's Leviosa, not Leviosa. You do it, then, if you're so clever. I solemnly swear that I am up to no good. Live long and prosper. From far beyond the galaxies, I've journeyed to this place to study the behavior patterns of the human race. And I find them highly illogical. If you're a big fan of Harry Potter or Star Trek, you might recognize some of those clips. After all, they're well-known pop culture icons. But what if I told you the consumer brands have fans who are just as passionate as the fans of The Handmaid's Tale or Mickey Mouse? And these fans can help companies become more socially responsible. Enter Henry Jenkins, USC's Provost Professor of Communications, Journalism, Cinematic Arts, and Education, and noted Star Trek fanatic. Henry says some of the most passionate activists originate from fandoms. And these days, every corporation has a fandom, but most don't know how to leverage those fans to build their brands or support their causes. Henry has been studying the relationship between fandom and activism for decades. Well, I, I'm a first-generation Star Trek fan, uh, but by the time we were discovering Star Trek, fandom had a history of more than 100 years of involvement in social and political debates. I would take the story back to the toy printing press movement of the mid-19th century, where people were hand-setting type and printing what we now call zines and spreading them through a circuit that included both the North and the South during the Civil War. And the National Amateur Press Association involved African Americans and women as well as white men during that period of time. So when science fiction fandom came along in the early 20th century, it was tied to the amateur radio movement, which was sort of ham radio operators. It was tied to debates about the future. It's part of a movement that's trying to popularize science at a time of rapid technological change so more people could participate in the debates where science is going. If we get to the 50s and 60s, a lot of social experimentation in fandom. So that the many of the first pro-gay, lesbian, bi-rights publications in the U.S. were actually fanzines produced within the science fiction community. They were experimenting with group marriage, say, in the 50s and 60s. And from that point forward, activism might describe the efforts to keep the show on the air, but it might also include support for Nicole Nichols' efforts to recruit more diverse astronauts. Uh, and that's the seed for where modern fan activism comes through, is through track, which we were both looking at in different different ways in that period of time. I grew up in the segregated South in the 60s. I went to segregated schools, segregated churches, lived in a segregated neighborhood, and diversity came to me by Star Trek and Martin Luther King, and both were on my television screens. Welcome to PR Future, the podcast that delivers interesting insights into the dynamic world of public relations. This week, we take a more theoretical look at new activism, exploring how a company's interaction with corporate fans, or as we know them, consumer advocates, can spark social change. 
This week, I'm passing the mic over to my Annenberg colleague, Professor Robert Kosnitz, the USC Jane and Hans Huffschmidt Chair of Strategic Public Relations. He and Henry, both pop culture experts, discuss fan activism and its relationship to political activism. I'm Fred Cook from the USC Center for Public Relations, and this is PR Future. Here's Rob in a conversation we recorded the afternoon of Representative John Lewis's funeral, July 30th. I missed you. We had a course all semester where we taught together every week, and it was a ton of fun. So I'm, I'm real happy that we get a chance to continue the conversations. And I think today's conversation is going to talk a little bit about activism, I think, a, a topic that's near and dear to both of our hearts. Could you just tell us a little bit about your journey as an academic, and in particular, maybe focus a little bit on how you became interested in activism and how that played a role in your career from, from, the, from the earliest points. I work in cultural studies. I worked on fandom quite early in my career, which grew out of the fact that I was myself a fan, had grown up as a fan, was actively involved in fandom, and felt like that community was badly represented by the existing theories and the communication cultural studies field. So I wanted to change that, create a new dialogue. And I coined this term participatory culture quite early on, not quite knowing what that bucket was, but feeling like it captured something important about a shift from spectator culture to participatory culture. That I was at MIT at the time, so I was there for the key wave of the digital revolution and involved with conversations with a lot of digital activists I grew up in a somewhat diverse neighborhood in Toronto, Canada, but a lot of my contact with urban American culture really came through shows like The Jeffersons and Sanford and Son and, and watching those spinoffs and understanding sort of that American mentality, which Canadians are sort of, as Grant McCracken likes to say, we're sort of at the back door looking in at our American neighbors and trying to understand the culture here. You know, it really came from all in the family and I'm being able to, I guess at that time, sort of laugh about it, but also be deeply affected by it too, I suppose. You know, when you talk about participatory culture, does it mean that you have to be involved in a letter writing campaign or go to conventions? Or is it something um, a little more subtle that, that many people might be able to identify with? And that is just sort of engaging with these shows and the different views of reality that they give us. Things become popular culture when they become reference points in our conversations. When they become resources we take up and use to make sense of our identity or the world around us. So the sort of debates my father and I would have after watching All in the Family, where he was more of an Archie and I was more of a meathead, those debates are already participatory culture. But what the digital did was create a space where media people could produce media and share media with each other. And the majority of American teens now have made media and shared it via the internet. So we move into a world where it's not that everyone must participate, but everyone should feel like they could participate and that their participation is welcome. And that's really the test we'd have of how participatory a culture is, is to what degree, if I spoke, would I be heard? To what degree would I feel confident in speaking? Playing with culture is a little more safe than playing with politics, although the ways those are colliding right now makes that a less safe space than it might have been but also a very fluid space where people are taking skills they acquire through fandom and applying them pretty immediately to movements for social change. 
Mm, so when you when you talk about content production, I, I start to think about how in the 1990s, Star Trek fans started filming their own versions of episodes. There was always this uh, pushback from the big brands, from the corporations that held onto these properties that in some ways kind of seemed to want to hold back that participatory element. But it also, I think, it sponsored that activist spirit where people felt it was us against them. I do think that we're in a place where there's corporate anxiety about that bridge between fan engagement with their property and fans' use of their property for other political struggles. Even, I think, for activist media stories, like let's take Handmaid's Tale, which is an interesting case because instantly the show premieres parallel with the Women's March and massive numbers of people are dressing up like handmaids for reproductive rights. So on one level, they're doing exactly what Margaret Atwood, the author of Handmaid's Tale, would have wanted them to do. They're moving on the issue the show talks about. On another hand, if I'm the producer of that show, am I anxious as that work bridges into the public sphere, as I start to lose control of that iconography, as it's being taken up and used in ways that I can't fully calculate, and as it becomes political at a time when brands are trying to calculate their own relationship to the political sphere. And that seems like treacherous territory. But how can the average corporation mobilize their fan base? Robin Henry said companies can learn a thing or two from prominent authors and celebrities who engage with their fans regularly. I'm always asked, and I think we had this conversation with Fred, initially asking about some positive examples of companies that had dealt with their hardcore brand activist type fans in a thoughtful way, particularly in the entertainment industry. I'm wondering if you have any any good examples. Well, on the brand side, I don't have very good examples. I think the message from brands to consumers is often very harsh, ill-considered. We can see in the pop culture realm, brands that build relationships, right? Um, Neil Gaiman, the science fiction fantasy comic book writer, is someone who's on Twitter every day engaging with his fans in ways that are constructive. He listens to criticism. He explains transparently why decisions were made, but also listens and makes adjustments to his own stories over time. I think that comics have done a very good job. I've written about two comics, Bitch Planet and... Uh, and um, sex criminals, which have very active letter writing campaigns that the writers themselves engage with. And they've made changes in their content based on issues that surfaced there and that they felt were central to the lives of the readers of those, those comics. And in those cases, the creator plays that chief culture officer role. And I think if you don't have someone in a creative production who's doing that, if you don't have someone with a brand who's doing it, I don't mean some intern who's popping out your slogan in the most inappropriate ways. I mean someone who's actively engaged with that community and listens to it and responds to its the flow of ideas there in a very active way. My, my friend Sam Ford, uh, who was a PR guy for a good while, talks about this as hearing aids. It's one thing to say, you know, you're listening, but to actually hear someone to engage with them and to enhance their communication with you, take something more active. We've all had conversations where we're reading the paper and someone's saying something to us and we're going, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. And then they say, did you hear me? What did I say? And you realize I had no idea that you just turned it into wah, 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 like the adults on peanuts 
rather than actually listening to the people singing, uh, you know, so to speak. And I think that I think that turnaround is what we really need in any of those positions. What is the proper role of brands right now? When you look at corporate response to these protests and this rising activism, and even starting with Colin Kaepernick taking a knee, I, I really think companies have been caught flat-footed. I don't know if you saw this morning, I was just looking at something that AdAge just released today. They had these whitewashed logos where they showed a number of different companies. It was Adidas, Microsoft, Starbucks, Lululemon, New York Times, and several others. What they would look like if you adjusted the whiteness to show how white the the executive group was, and most of them you couldn't even read the logos because it would it just looked like a white square. You you get I think individuals who are very interested in being activists and companies that are very interested in staying away from that that controversy. And I think it, it showed up also a little bit in the survey that we had. I thought you know a number of those findings of the PR managers. We're really talking about a very sort of cautious, tepid view of activism. This happened before sort of there was this collective wokeness and protests in Minneapolis and spreading to Portland, as we know now. But I think, you know, companies are really, they themselves are made to be cautious. The people they hire are there to perpetuate the institutions. They feel like there should be some response, but I think they're very, very careful about what that response should be. You know, as we think about the current moment, I am seeing lead-footed and, you know, facepalm responses from companies of all sides. Tepid would describe some of the inane ways that brands initially attached themselves to Black Lives Matter. So there was a bathroom product which said, We're, we've got your backside uh, to the Black Lives Matter movement, right? There was a bubblegum company that celebrated their commitment to fight for anti-racism. You know, we don't need every product connected to the social change movement. And some of those are just so awkward that you can't imagine who decided that was an appropriate response. On the other hand, we're also seeing rapid response to battles around mascots and logos that have been going on for decades. How long have people been calling out Aunt Jemima or Uncle Ben? And suddenly people woke up and said, my, those are racist. We've got to change those today. You know, clearly there's movement and it's reasonable for there to be movement as we clean out some of the residual culture that's out there that is deeply offensive to the minority groups involved. One wise course is to let it happen, right? To allow fan activism to do organize around your logos while maintaining distance from it. And these fans aren't claiming to own the material. They're, they're very careful to manage trademark relationships so that they're not misleading the public about who they are. They're tapping a story in the same way Martin Luther King would tap the story of Moses, right? It's, it's evoking a narrative. And in that sense, they are people who are celebrating your production, who are engaged in your production in a deep way, may even in a cynical way be promote your brand and awareness. The first task is to figure out what's actually going on. Are they directing their activism against you? Is it something you need to change within the corporate communication structure, within the branding? Or is, are they using your material to participate in a protest elsewhere, which is really a celebration of your work? And then is their goal to as fans to change you in such a way that continues to enhance the value of your brand or your property? Or are they anti-fans who are critical? You still can learn from those anti-fans, 
but you don't read it in terms of their investment in your brand or IP in quite the same way. So you've got to sort out the players and where they stand, understand those tensions, and then you can begin to respond. You still have to use your judgment to sort through which voices of fans you're willing to respond to and why, what's consistent with your core values, your core message, and what is just beyond what you can tolerate. And that's the battle you pick and fight with. But your fans properly engaged can help lead your company into the next generation and really deepen people's commitment to the brand rather than doing a superficial gesture, connecting your toilet tissue, the backside of Black Lives Matter protester. But when your brand fans start to show this kind of activism too, that the more devoted the fan is to your brand, probably the more vehemently they're going to want to defend that brand as they see it, let's say Phantom Menace for Star Wars fans. They went against the creator, they went against the studio and they protested, called for boycotts and said, don't see this, it's not real Star Wars, it's inauthentic. That's a, that's a scary prospect to think that, that participatory culture actually empowers everyone who's devoted to a particular brand to then take on that activist label, those activist activities, and also organize around it and mobilize other people who feel that way. One moment is when the Harry Potter Alliance, an activist group formed of Harry Potter fans, went after Warner Brothers because they were not using fair trade chocolate at their amusement parks, the Wizarding World of Harry Potter. And the fans ran, mostly young people, ran a three-year campaign of petitions, of podcasts, of all kinds of media calling this out. Finally, we're able to get J.K. Rowling's support behind it. And Warner has been publicly acknowledged the issue, moved to guarantee that the chocolate they were selling was fair trade. In the process, they educated a whole generation of Harry Potter fans about the issue of fair trade chocolate, and they've applied those pressures on a variety of other brands. Now we flip to the current moment where J.K. Rowling uh, came out recently against trans rights and a series of really outrageous and provocative statements. I heard from many of the young people of that generation, many of whom were themselves trans or non-binary, who had found their voice and their sense of belonging through the Harry Potter community. Now they're saying, I have to give up everything. I'm not going to buy this anymore. I'm not going to give any money that might go directly to Rowling's pockets. And that has been a huge gut-wrenching shift for these young activists because that was their story that they saw the world through and they understood their identity with. And Rowling, who has always wanted to retro-write her novels and insist on policing fan interpretation, took this too far for the fan base she built up and did serious damage. So what I often hear from media managers is, a fear of losing control. The reality is they lost control a decade ago. That the fans I study, the activists I study can do with your, your logos, your brands, whatever they want. And you may stop some of them through legal action, but the more you do, the more you're gonna antagonize them and the more it's gonna shift toward an anti-consumerist trend. What you wanna do is get in the game. You want to actually engage with those fans understand where they're coming from, learn from them, listen and hear them. You want to be transparent in your relations to them because they are part of the community that supports your brand. And I think we see, that's why at the moment we're seeing hyper-responsiveness. So if we think about what's happened with Trader Joe recently, 
It's a little hard to parse out whether the petitions Trader Joe got were from fans or anti-fans, but there's some of both, I think, behind the language of this petition, which was upset by the ethnic stereotypes Trader Joe's was using, like Trader Jose, on its branding for ethnic products. And within two days of that petition going public, they made a decision to shift. They instantly said, oh, I meant to do that all along. And pardon me if I'm skeptical of that when you only announce a change after there's a protest, but say it was already in the works. I suspect that's a PR move, uh, not an actual statement of what happened. So I will accept the premise that, in fact, they changed in response to their brand community because they realized that they were on the losing side of a battle and they needed to maintain those relationships with their fans more than they needed to have a cutesy branding. Right. That wasn't central to Trader Joe's brand. I mean, it was exactly as you say. It was kind of a, a superficial cutesy move. And I think what you're saying in a lot of ways is companies are reacting and maybe we fault them for reacting. But when they're proactive and they go a little too far, that seems to be a lot worse. It seems to be better in a lot of ways to respond to the activists who come at you and, and listen, start a conversation and make adjustments than to sort of say, oh, we're holding ourselves out there and we're going to proactively change this and change that and do this and do that. So in a way for companies to be slow acting and to be caught flat-footed, it may not be that bad for them. What do you think of that? I think a, th I think a thoughtful response is better than a quick and thoughtless response, right? I mean, I think you want to show active listening. You want to say, I'm taking it under consideration. I'm you know, weighing the issues here. I want to hear from your voices. That buys you some time. It's a kind of throat clearing, but it's also symbolically necessary. And then you really try to understand what's going on in that fandom into understanding that culture. And that's where Grant McCracken's chief culture officer idea, that is there should be someone in the boardroom who monitors the culture around your brand and really digs deep into understanding the communities that consume your brands that becomes an active role in such a process. So the ability to analyze culture as part of understanding not just the strategic communication, but the core operations of the business is, I think, an important part of what companies need right now. As Henry and Rob point out, engagement with consumer fans on social issues is paramount to successful CSR. But what may come as a surprise is that they also say this engagement doesn't have to always be political. You've written about this a lot in your work. You talk about this notion of civic imagination a lot. And when a work comes along that is a powerful dystopian future, like Atwood's or a powerful utopian future, like Roddenberry's, it seems to really activate people in a way that you know regular news and their ordinary lives just aren't able to. I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about this notion of civic engagement, how it started with you and your thinking and where it's taken you. So the political is about struggle over power, over resources. The civic is about what connects us together as members of a shared community. In a healthy democracy, we build up the civic and have a reconciliation after each election cycle. So at the end of the day, the plumber may be a different political party than I am, but we continue to do business with each other. We continue to see each other as neighbors. And we agree to disagree on those things that get us through everyday life. But there's a space to, where we agree on the basic norms, 
standards of democratic society. So how do we get there? Well, this is where I think the imagination comes into play. So before we can build a better world, we need to imagine what a better world looks like. We have to imagine ourselves as a civic agent. We have to imagine our space within a community. We have to imagine the process of social change. We have to feel some degree of empathy and solidarity with people whose experiences and perspectives are different than our own. And for those who are most oppressed, we need to imagine freedom, dignity, participation, even before we directly experience it. So we're on the day of John Lewis's funeral. He did a spectacular job in Selma convincing Black people who'd never voted before, never been able to vote before, that the struggle for the vote was important. Now, for his generation, the Black church was the key to that civic imagination, right? The story of Moses and the rhetoric that Martin Luther King would have used about, I've been to the mountaintop, I've seen the promised land, I won't be able to cross the River Jordan with you. That whole story is woven through King's speeches and Lewis's speeches to empower people to think about a movement up from Egypt into freedom. Today, with young people, the stories that matter, the shared vernacular, comes from popular culture. And that's worldwide, that they've come out in a world where fandom was their gateway into participation, into finding their voice, they're acquiring skills, and now they're deploying those toward strategic communication, social advocacy, social change movements. You know, and I can think about a brand like Coca-Cola. I grew up in Atlanta. My brother's Christmas tree is completely decorated with Coke red and Coke-related ornaments. That's a part of the civic imagination of Atlanta. Coke built a connection over time, which has deteriorated in recent years. But Coke was for a long time central to the civic imagination of the city of Atlanta. And brands can do that without being political and go back to this distinction I'm making between the civic and the political. The political is divisive. The civic is unifying if we do it right. The brands can help us build up the civic rather than running away from the political. And I think it would make a huge difference. As we learned from Kelly McGinnis of Levi Strauss in our last episode, employees can be some of a company's most vocal activists. So we asked Henry how corporations should best respond to their own employees' activism. I mean, I think the question is, is it likely to be confused with the official message of the brand? If we're talking about people working inside the company at desk jobs in their cubicles, then I don't see it matters that they wear a Black Lives Matter t-shirt any more than it matters that they have, uh, you know, superhero action figures on their desk, right? It's the equivalent of a local carving out of a space for personal identity within what has historically been impersonal workspace. And we're not in the era of the gray flannel suit. We're in an era where the cubicle culture has thrived for the last decade or two around expression of individual identity in a variety of ways. That's very different if it's a chief operating officer appearing on national television representing your brand. The other end of the spectrum may be coercion to endorse a particular brand. So the baseball world has moved overnight from banning people taking the knee to almost an obligation. If you're a baseball player and you don't take the knee today, you're going to have a huge backlash from the company as much from, as from the fans. So I think you should have the right not to communicate a political message and not have that decision read as, oh, you're diametrically opposite from it. If I was going to 
turn the tables on you a little bit and ask you to think about the future and think about the relationship between brands and activism in the year 2060. What, what would you say? Well, I think what the, all the trends we're seeing suggest that people will become activists at younger and younger age. David Hogg, who's one of the leader of the March for Our Lives movement, uses this phrase, a no permission necessary culture. So we're seeing young people take skills they acquired filming themselves on skateboards and use them to record political protests and the, how the police are reacting to them. So there's a training ground that allows people to become activists by the time they're in high school and to really be capable of having a voice in the society. But the question is whether the society is prepared to, to hear. A lot of the K-pop fans who've become politically in the headlines this summer are too young to vote, but they have strong views on the future of their society. So what is the mechanism our society offers them? A lot of fans are consumers who are surplus from the initial vision of a product or an intellectual property. They're not the target, but they're people deeply invested who are trying to retrofit the product to be more responsive to them. They are groups who are retrofitting symbols in the culture to serve their needs. And just as we might listen, if we're Lego, say we listen to lead users to understand how to, to design the bricks of the future, brands can listen to the civic imagination of this upcoming generation. And yes, it will be more diverse. Yes, it will be more female. The demographic change suggests America's on a course to be minority majority within the next 20 years, depending which demographic person you're talking about. So if brands aren't keeping track of the diversity of the culture around them, they're going to fail to communicate by the year 2060, probably by the year 2050. And it's going to be a global force, not just an Americanized force. So this post-millennial generation, K-pop is central to their cultural identity in a way that it is peripheral to older people. It is the glue that holds people together around the world. And so they're going to be listening to different music. They're going to respond to different styles. They're going to be concerned with different issues because they are increasingly in a global or at least transnational conversation that's going to shape their thoughts about brands. And so you used to be able to do an experiment in India, say, as a brand and have it not come back and bite you. It will be known by all consumers of your brand within 10 minutes of when you introduce it. So you can't experiment in the so-called developing world as a slow petri dish for what you're going to do the future. You're now in a global communication environment, and that's going to drive, I think, social change in the way consumers relate to brands in the future. As Rob and Henry have discussed, today's activists are different than the activists of the past. They're younger, they're more diverse, they're more empathetic, and they're more connected. And they believe that those traits will make them also be more successful at creating long-lasting change. Well, I feel like there's as much momentum for change in America today as there's been at any point. I think if we look at young activists, we're seeing a number of things that are different. One is intersectionality. When people go back to the history of the 60s, they see it was a white woman's movement, the beginnings of feminism. It wasn't addressing race. That the Vietnam War protests were often white-driven, and yet most of the soldiers were Latino and Black. So that there were things that were left unsaid and unaddressed, and there were sharp racial divides when those guys came home and felt attacked, you know, for their service, that that created sharper divides in the protest movement. 
Whereas these young activists are instantly thinking across race. So you look at something like the Parkland kids who come from an elite private school that definitely Emma Gonzalez is a Latinx queer woman. And that's important that she's the front of that movement. But they knew they were upper middle class white people. So instantly they reached out to young people involved in the native rights protest at Standing Rock, to black youth in Oakland fighting against police violence and made it a gun violence campaign and not just a school shooting campaign. And that was really important in the ways in which they approached this. They're also looking more closely at self-care, which is a big theme that I heard at this Hermione Granger Research Academy that I was at a couple of weekends ago that was run by the Harry Potter Alliance and brought together all kinds of young activists to think about it. They were aware about burnout, the need for mutual support, the need to take time out, to not destroy all of your relationships, and deeply committed to the idea of empathy, even to those people you disagree with. And that's a message you'd have to go back to the origins of the nonviolent civil rights movement to see the level of empathy for those you disagree with articulated. That certainly wasn't the case during the 60s anti-war movement. There wasn't a lot of empathy for service people during that even. And I think, I think that makes a difference. So I feel like it's a healthier, more connected movement that is younger, but also is taking the time to build something that is sustainable over time. And it is open to many people finding their voice. So people have said that it's a leaderless movement. I don't think that's right. I think it's a leaderful movement in the sense that leaders can step up from anywhere at any time and make a difference in the ways the movement is moving forward. So it's not a shortage of leaders. It's a proliferation of leaders and efforts like this Leadership Academy to train the next generation of leaders at younger and younger age because those energies are there in the youth in a way they've been sanded away from those of us who've been in fights for decades. You can't cut the head off of a movement and have the movement end if it's dispersed in this way. And as you say, Henry, a leader full movement, then it means it really is grassroots in a way that is self-sustaining and momentum building. As Rob and Henry have taught us, there is real value in cultivating conversations with fan activists. Continuing this important work, Henry has traveled around the world interviewing community groups about the change they want to see, revealing their aspirations that transcend political party lines and imagine a better tomorrow. Thanks, Rob and Henry, for sharing your ideas with us. And thanks also to our fans for tuning in to PR Future. To learn more, tap the link in the show notes to download your copy of New Activism and subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Today's episode was recorded live from Chicago and produced remotely in Los Angeles by Ron Antoinette and Zazu Lippert from the USC Center for Public Relations. I'm your host, Fred Cook. And this is PR Future.